0: Most people, I think, would say, yes, Revelation is for me the most difficult book in the Bible to understand. Actually, Revelation is the easiest book in the Bible to understand. I don't mean that every detail in the book is easy to understand, but as a whole, it's the simplest, most straightforward and easiest book in the Bible to understand, because the whole of Revelation is simply saying this, Jesus Christ has conquered and reigns in heaven's glory. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. In its essence, at its heart, it is about the triumph of the crucified. John is writing to Christians who are experiencing what he has experienced, suffering and persecution. The last thing they need is an enigmatic puzzle to solve. The last thing they need is a conundrum that will occupy them and bewilder them and leave them wondering what on earth God is about in this book of Revelation. John is writing to encourage hard-pressed, sorely pressed, perhaps dispirited Christians who are suffering under the evil of the Roman Empire. If we are right in locating the book of Revelation towards the end of the first century, probably the emperor Diocletian was in power in Rome. Christians were seen to be a threat to the empire. They would not bow and acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. They worshiped and bowed before another Lord called Jesus. They were being marginalized, persecuted. They suffered for the sake of Jesus Christ. And Revelation is written to lift up their hearts to say to them, the victory is ours in union with our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, when you read the book of Revelation, there are three things at least you need to keep in the forefront of your mind before you launch into the bizarre imagery that so often can confuse and confound us. Number one, the book was written not to confuse us but to encourage us. The psalmist writes in the 119th Psalm, Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for correction, for rebuke, for instruction for training in righteousness. God has not given us His Word to leave us bewildered and perplexed. That's why in part He's given the church pastors and teachers, that we might explain and open up the riches of God's Word. Indeed, the book of Revelation, and not least this passage before us this morning, is a book that plunders the imagery of the Old Testament Scriptures. In Revelation 4, you have echoes and more than echoes of Genesis chapter 9, of Exodus 19, and of Ezekiel chapter 1. John would have expected the Christians to whom he was writing to know their Bibles and to realize, ah, I've read this before. This is in the book of Ezekiel. Oh, I've heard about a rainbow. That's Genesis, what we call chapter 9, and so on. God's not given us His Word to leave us confused. Nor has He given us His Word that we might arrogantly imagine that we know the times and the seasons for everything throughout history. Number two Revelation is about the triumph of the crucified. It's about the triumph of Jesus Christ. That's what Revelation essentially is about. These Christians are being persecuted. Life is hard. Maybe that's true for you this morning. Life is hard. John wants these Christian believers to whom he is writing to know that while life is hard, and while life may experience great sufferings and trials, Jesus Christ has triumphed. To Him belongs the kingdom, the power, and the glory. That's why the very first chapter begins the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that could mean it's an unveiling, that's what revelation means, an unveiling, a pulling back of the curtain that Jesus wants His church to know. But it could also mean it's an unveiling of who Jesus Christ is. This is the Jesus we believe in. This is the Jesus who has come from heaven's glory to redeem us. He is no longer. He is no longer despised and rejected by men on this earth. He has been exalted to the right hand of God. He holds cosmic dominion. He is orchestrating the heavens and the earth to the praise of God and to the ultimate blessedness of His church. Revelation is about the triumph of the crucified. And the third thing to remember when you read Revelation is that it's a pastoral letter. It's not a treatise in eschatology, in the doctrine of the last things. It's a pastoral letter. And John makes that very clear in the opening chapter. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. He's writing to churches. As I said, he's not writing a puzzle. What can you make of this conundrum? Can you understand all this imagery that I'm about to load upon you? That's not what he's saying. He's writing a pastoral letter. John is a pastor, and he's saying to himself, how can I, under God, encourage these Christian believers who are suffering for the sake of the gospel? So it's not written to confuse us. It's about God and the triumph of the crucified, and it's a pastoral letter John is writing to support, to nourish, to strengthen, to encourage, and to give heart to God's suffering people. And you can see how relevant that is to the church throughout the ages. In this world, said Jesus, John 16, you will have tribulations. The normal condition of the Christian church in this world is a condition of suffering. Now, your nation and my nation, in case you're wondering, I'm a Scot who's part of the United Kingdom, but your nation and my nation for some hundreds of years have been protected in large measure from the sufferings that our brothers and sisters in Christ in many parts of the world have experienced throughout the centuries. But we're increasingly depleting our Christian capital. Our Christian history and heritage is being eroded by the day. Evil is being called good. Good is being called evil. And Christians are increasingly finding themselves marginalized in an increasingly secularized, humanized society. It's certainly true in my nation, and I guess it's increasingly true here. And we need to be reminded, as much as these first century Christian believers, that the Lord our God reigns. If someone came to your house later today deeply distressed, a Christian, a fellow believer, they come deeply distressed. Life is hard. They've been overwhelmed by by tragedy and unforeseen circumstance, they can hardly see the way ahead. They say, please, can you help me? Can you help me? And you bring them into your home. You sit them down and you might provide a cup of coffee or tea or whatever. And they're waiting for you to to minister to them and to help them in in their confusion and distress and you say to them, let's remind ourselves what the Bible tells us about God. They might say to you, well, well, that's fine. Maybe we can do that tomorrow. But I really need your help now. Can you please help me in my confusion, in my distress, in my troubles, in my anxieties? We'll leave the theology for tomorrow. Please help me. But you see, the Bible wants us to know that the greatest help we could ever give anyone is to set before them who God is. Let me try and illustrate that from the life of the Lord Jesus Christ before we plunge into Revelation 4. Jesus is about to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to the cross. The shadow of the cross has begun to penetrate His human soul. His disciples are utterly confounded. Life seems to be disintegrating around them. Jesus tells them that He is going soon to be leaving them. And then in John 14 through 17, Jesus ministers to these confused, perplexed disciples. Remember how John 14 begins, let not your hearts be troubled, because their hearts were troubled. What does Jesus do in John 14 through 17? Well, essentially He does this. I know life seems uncertain. I know that you are confused. I know that the prospect of my leaving you is something you cannot bear. Here's what you need to know. You need to know who God is. Is. That's what John 14 through 17 is. Jesus introduces them to the Holy Trinity, to the Father, to the ministry of the Spirit, and to His own oneness with the Father and with the Spirit. He talks to them about the Father Himself and the Spirit coming to them, indwelling them, the Spirit's ministry in them, comforting them, encouraging them, strengthening them, establishing them, leading them. He speaks of the Father's love to them. He's really saying, let me unpack to you the great truth of the Holy Trinity. And that, in essence, I think, is what John is doing throughout Revelation. He's saying, behold your God. You see, the problem, at least let me give you my assessment of the problem in the church today, the fundamental problem in the church today is that we have lost the sight and the sense of who our God is. We've lost the sight and the sense of His greatness and His glory, His majesty, His power, His dominion. God is often presented as someone a little bigger than ourselves, but He is the thrice holy transcendent God of the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of all things, the upholder and sustainer of all things, the director of all things, and the one who will one day consummate all things. And again and again and again in the Bible, God's message to His people is, behold your God, a God to tremble before as well as run to a God to stand in awe of, as well as to delight in, behold your God. Revelation chapter 4. John has shown three things, and I want to draw five implications from the three things that John saw. He saw, you'll notice, an open door. I looked, and behold, a door snadding open in heaven. He saw an open door. Secondly, he saw an occupied throne. Verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. An open door, an occupied throne. And then in the rest of the chapter, he's shown... A picture of unceasing worship. Now, don't be distracted by who the 24 elders are, or the four beasts with these bizarre faces, which really is simply lifted from Ezekiel chapter 1. Don't be distracted by that. I don't mean they're unimportant, but don't be distracted. John is shown an open door, an occupied throne, and a picture of unceasing worship. And these verses in chapter 4 and really into chapter 5 act like a prelude to a symphony. Now, you know the function of a prelude is to introduce you to a symphony, but not only to introduce you, but to highlight the notes that are going to recur in the symphony, That's the function of a prelude to prepare you for the drama of the sympathy, of the the symphony. And this is what chapters 4 and 5 are doing. They're like a prelude to a theological symphony. And it's striking that John is shown, first of all, an open door, an occupied throne, and a vision of unceasing worship." What does John want, what does God want through the Apostle John to impress on these hard-pressed, suffering, marginalized Christian believers? Let me mention five things very briefly this morning. Number one, He wants them to know that their God is inexpressibly. And unspeakably great. I saw, says John, a throne with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And all of these various uh, creatures in heaven are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. God is saying to His people, do you see how great your God is? Isn't that the way to understand the trials and the tribulations and the troubles of this life, to place them alongside who our God is. That's what God wants His church to know. I'm not a bigger version of you. I am the one seated on the throne of the cosmos. I am the thrice holy God of eternity. I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. I'm exalted above the confusions and the cataclysms and the chaos of this world that is engulfing you. It doesn't engulf me. I'm not subject to the cataclysms and the chaos. I reign above them all. Behold your God. And that's exactly the message, for example, that God gave to His people through the prophet Isaiah at a time in their life when they were being overwhelmed by their circumstances. The end of Isaiah chapter 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. Now, why does he ask the question, have you not known? Have you not heard? They could reply, oh yes, we know that, fine. We read about that in Exodus chapter 3, in Exodus chapter 19, and so on. We we know that. But God is saying, do you really know it? And that can be applied to us. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Oh, we know it well. We know the shorter catechism. God is infinite and eternal, so on. We know our theology. We know our confession. But do we know in our hearts? Do we know in the very fabric of our being that our God is altogether inexpressibly great? Do we stand in awe? before him do we bow our hearts as well as our heads as we draw near to him do we realize that we are coming before a great god and a great king as we gather for worship this morning or has it been easy for us to sidle up to church and sit in our seats and sing God's praises we sang at the opening praise holy holy holy. Do you know when the seraphim in Isaiah 6 cried that, the unfallen angels veiled their faces. They were overwhelmed by the wonder of who God is. And that's what God is saying to His people. Here is how you gain perspective in life. Here is how you, you will not be overwhelmed by the confusions and the cataclysms and the chaos that is engulfing our world by seeing all things in the light of who God is. Behold your God. Secondly, God wants us people through this to know that they can at all times immediately drawn near to him. I think that's why John is shown a door standing open in heaven. It's not closed. You could not today walk up to the White House and knock on the door and say, may I see the president, please? They would say, who are you? Who are you? I couldn't walk up to Buckingham Palace and say, I would really like to see the queen today. And who on earth are you? Do you have an appointment? Well, I don't have an appointment. Well, get lost. Go away. You're not welcome. But here is the throne room of the King of all kings. And there's a door standing open. And God is saying to His people, in all your trials and troubles, in all your confusion and in all the the adversities that are engulfing you, I want you to know this, you can run to me at all times. There will never be a door barred against you. I may be the exalted king of all kings, but to my children I'm the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. There's a wonderful um Illustration of that, I think, in the early years of the 20th century, a little boy was peering through the gates of Buckingham Palace in London, looking, just wondering what on earth it would be like to go into the palace and, uh, and see the king, Victoria, died. It was now King Edward. And as he looked longingly, this stranger, now children, don't do what this little boy did, but this stranger comes up and says, what are you doing? Oh, he says, I'm, I'm looking at where the king lives. And the stranger said, would you like to see the king? And the little boy said, I would love to see the king. Take my hand, he says. So the little boy takes his hand and, and they walk up. You know, the guards at Buckingham Palace with their bearskins, they stand to attention, they salute. And the little boy thinks, oh, this is, this is wonderful. And, and they march through the quadrangle. They come to the great doors and the doors swing open. And he's brought right into the palace. How could it be? The son of the king had taken him by the hand. But Jesus Christ doesn't simply take us by the hand into the throne room of God. We have been united to Him by faith. We are born of His bone and flesh of His flesh. And in all our extremities, and in all our sadnesses, and in all our sufferings, we can immediately, in Jesus Christ, go through that open door, because Christ Himself, as you know, is the door. And I have little doubt that that John would have expected people to think, didn't John write about this in another place, a gospel? Didn't Jesus say, I am the door, by me, if any man enter, he will be saved? There was an open door. But then thirdly, God wants His people to know that their circumstances are never fortuitous. You see, God is on the throne of the cosmos, And this morning maybe you've come to church and your life is overwhelmed by unforeseen circumstance. Maybe things have happened. Maybe you've been deeply disappointed. Maybe your soul has been bruised by people you love. Maybe maybe you're here this morning and, and life seems to be falling apart around you. But not one of your circumstances or mine are fortuitous. They haven't just happened unbeknown to God. He's on the throne. He's not a helpless bystander. The Bible takes no prisoners in its theology. It tells us, for example, in Ephesians 1 that God ordains all things, all things according to His own will, good purpose, and pleasure. And that's confusing to us. Because there are things that happen to us that are sinful and bad and wicked and evil. And the devil wants us to say, well, if God is in control of all things and ordains all things, then God must be the author of evil. The ultimate blasphemy. God doesn't expect us to understand Him. What a poor, limited, truncated being He would be. If we could understand him, he'd just be a bigger version of me, and a bigger version of you. When the Bible tells us that none of our circumstances are fortuitous, they haven't just happened, it doesn't mean that God has connived in evil and wickedness, far from it. But it does say to us that our times are in his hands that my life, not for one nanosecond, is at the mercy of vileness, wickedness, and evil. Life is not a lottery. It may seem like that. That's why the book of Psalms should be far more foundational and fundamental, I think, in our Christian walk with God, because the Psalmists are so real, aren't they? Embarrassingly real. Lord, you've picked me up and you've thrown me away. Have you ever said that to God? Lord, your ways are bewildering to me. Have you ever said that to God? Sometimes we're too polite in God's presence. God wants us to be honest. And the Psalms are just full of radical honesty that leave you at times thinking, goodness me, What a daring thing to say to God. God, you've abandoned us. Where are you? Our enemies are laughing at us, mocking us, and you're nowhere to be seen. What kind of a God are you? That's in the Psalms. And yet, surrounding all of that, there is the truth that that in the throne of the cosmos, the Lord God Almighty reigns. God is saying to His people, in all your trials and troubles and all the sufferings you're going through, nothing is happening to you out with my holy, wise, good, and perfect will. I'm not expecting you to understand it. I'm not expecting you to simply embrace it easily and lightly. I'm expecting you, like my Son, to say, not my will, but your will be done. None of your circumstances and none of mine are fortuitous. Fourthly, God wants His people to know that the great calling of the church is worship, not evangelism. Why do we evangelize? You say, well, that's a no-brainer, silly Scotsman. Why do we evangelize? We evangelize that people might be saved and reconciled to God, rescued from hell and brought to heaven. No, no, no. That's not why we evangelize. That's a means to an end. The ultimate aim of evangelism is not that people be saved, but that God has worshipers. John chapter 4. The Father seeks worshippers. The ultimate reason for evangelism is worship. And that's why the great mark of the church, is not that we are an evangelizing people. I'm, making, I'm stressing the difference to make a point. It's not that we're an evangelizing people, but that we are a worshiping people. Now, you can't be a worshiping people, really, without being an evangelizing people. I understand that. But the best evangelists are those who understand that their first calling in life is to worship God. Evangelism is the overflow of worship. And that's why you have this great picture here of these strange beasts and these um, unknown elders who perhaps represent the church throughout the ages, but I'm not dogmatic about it. And these strange living creatures, and what are they doing all the time? All the time. They're praising God. They're praising God. It's absolutely right that Christian churches should be seeker friendly. But so often I think we get the seeker friendly bit wrong. The best way to help seekers... Is to be a people who are caught up with God. Who come into our midst and say. My these people have a great God. Who come into the midst of a people who are worshipping. Who are giving God. The praise and the adoration. Not only of their lips. And not even only of their hearts. But of their whole beings. Worship. Is a preparation for heaven. Heaven is all about worship. That's all we will do. Now, you might be thinking, well, oh, I find an hour and a quarter on a Sunday morning and harvest hard enough. I don't think I would like all of like You mean 24 hours a day? Well, there'll be no days and no nights. But God will be endlessly praised and it will be the delight and the joy of the hearts of His children, so to praise Him. Because God is in a bottomless deep. You will never tire of being with Him. There will always be new things to marvel at and wonder at. And here are these these beings, and they're just praising. They're just praising, worshiping God. That's the church's preeminent calling in the world. Of course, we are to Go and make disciples of all nations. Of course, we are to seek the lost that they might be saved, but only that they might become what they were created for. That's why the first question and answer of the Shorter Catechism is so magnificent. It doesn't have the, the beauty of the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. It doesn't have the beauty of it, but it trumps it in the theology of it. At least, I think so. You Dutch folk can close your ears. (laughs) What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and notice the next bit and enjoy Him forever. God is to be enjoyed. I enjoy being with my wife. I'd rather be with her than anyone else in the world. I never tire after 37 years and amazingly, she never tires of being with me. That's the amazing thing. You will never tire of being with God because He is endlessly and infinitely glorious and beautiful. God saying to His people, in the midst of your troubles and trials, don't forget your first calling is to worship. And finally this, God wants His people to know that while evil may be powerful, it will one day be vanquished. He is on the throne, not Satan not the adversaries, not the emperor in Rome. Jesus Christ is Lord. One day God will cast Satan and all who bear his mark. I think that's what the 666 says. People say, who, who, who is the 666. It's actually, what is the six, six, six? Six is one less than seven perfection. Seven is the mark of perfect divine perfection. Six is the mark of man, the mark of humanity without God. And God will one day cast Satan and all who bear his mark into the lake of fire. He will make a new heavens and a new earth. We will never again shed a tear. We will never again know pain or sorrow, we'll never again know death or separation, we'll never again know anything to blemish our lives, because God will make all things new. He will vanquish. Now, He has vanquished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Satan, but now He's going to cosmically make that visible and irreversible by casting Satan and all who are his into the lake of fire. There's one last thing I want to say about this throne, just in a moment. And it's the best thing about the throne. It's hinted at here, actually, by the imagery of the rainbow, which I may touch on. But it's made clear in chapter 7. we're told in the midst of the throne there is a lamb looking as if it had been slain. You see, God's sovereignty is not a bare, clinical, cold, autocratic sovereignty. It's the sovereignty of grace. In the midst of the throne is a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The only marred body in heaven will be the body of the God-man, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. I'll have no blemishes, but He will bear to all eternity the marks of our redemption. And that reminds us that the throne of God is a throne of grace. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says, just as I close, chapter 4, 14 through 16. Let us therefore come boldly to that throne because it's a throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Why can we who are the dust of the earth, rebellious against God, how, how is it possible that we can come to this throne? because we come united to Jesus Christ. And that's the significance, I think, of the rainbow. When you think of the rainbow, what do you think about? Genesis chapter 9, God's sign of mercy, the covenant of mercy at the end of the flood. And you see there is an aura of mercy around the throne of God. It's breathtaking actually, isn't it? John? is scrabbling for words and images to convey the unconveyable, but he wants us to know that the throne of the august majesty of the cosmos is a throne of mercy. Some of you will have heard of Samuel Rutherford, great 17th century Scottish pastor, theologian. He would write in a number of his letters, may we meet again under the rainbow. Isn't that our hope this morning? That by the grace of God, we will together through faith in Jesus Christ meet again under the rainbow which encircles the throne of God. Revelation difficult? Well, I've not told you about the 24 elders, the four beasts, the strange, bizarre images we read later on, they're there. But Revelation is more an impressionist painting than a railway timetable. And the great impression is behold, your God. Let us pray. Father, we bless you that your greatness is both unimaginable and inexpressible. There is none like unto you, O Lord, in the heavens above or on the earth beneath. Help us, we pray. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Spirit, help us to have a greater sight and sense of who you are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.